and welcome to another uh, Scots We Hate podcast, the second of our podcasts using Zoom. And um, we're going to be speaking tonight to the writer Alan Parks. Hello, Alan. Hello. Um, first question, I guess, is uh, how are you getting on with uh, this whole situation that we're in at the moment? Well, it's funny because everyone keeps telling me, oh, you're a writer, it'll be fine, you know, it's not that different. And I'm like, well, sort of. But at the same time, I did have another bit of life. I did go out and about and do stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, everyone seems to think you spend your entire life sitting at the kitchen table, which you kind of do. But So I suppose it's probably a bit easier for me than most people. But it's I, the thing about spending all day by yourself writing is fine if you can go out at night and have a drink or, you know, see, see people or something. But when you just have it all the time, I think yeah. that's what you get a bit wound up in the house. So it's been okay. I've been doing my daily walk and uh, stuff. So it's not been too bad, but, you no. know. How about yeah, you? No, that's right. It's, it is different. I work from home a lot and you think, yeah. uh, oh, this is going to be fine. But just the choice of not being able to yeah. go out has been taken uh -huh. away. So... Um, you know, let's talk first of all about your latest book, Bobby March Will Live Forever. Yes. Um, now, that had just come out, is that right? It came out in March, so yeah, it just came out just for about, uh, and then I think it was out for about a month, then everything shut down. So uh, were you promoting it? Was there stuff going on there? Well, yeah, I was supposed to go to, I was supposed to be in America right now, which is not happening, yeah. which is a bit annoying. Um, I was supposed to be in Milan and... France, all sorts of places, but it all just ground to a halt, really. Um, which you know, that's hardly the end of the world, but it's it's a bit frustrating. But um, I don't quite know what will happen, um, whether they'll do it again or whether they'll just keep going or whatever. But I think most of the stuff here had been done, right? Uh, so it wasn't too bad, but uh, yeah, it was a bit strange. I had a sort of month of all systems go, then everything got pulled. So, um, were you going to be doing an I Write event? Was that done? No, I wasn't doing that actually. I wasn't. That was, that was the only one I wasn't doing. But um, there was just a lot of things that they'd put in and um, a lot of things abroad as well. And they just all went. Yeah. So there's nothing you can do, really. Some I miss more than others, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, I mean, do you know if it's due to, when it's due to come out in paperback? And... They normally it's about 10 months. So I would imagine that'll be. February next year, maybe. Right, so there might be the chance then to... Yeah, we do it a bit. They, they normally have the paperback, the one before, and then the hardback, pretty hard on it. Right. Um, but I think that's the plan, but I'm not quite sure, to be honest. So this is the third of the Harry McCoy thrillers. Um, I guess, first thing to ask you is tell us a little bit about the book and, and, uh, and the thrillers in general. Um, well, the book's kind of about... It's set in 1974 in Glasgow when I, when I kind of, one of those kind of rock guitars like Mick Ronson or Terry Riley, you know, never quite became a solo star in their own right. They never had yeah. one record or something, but they were always on the edge of everyone else. Um, so this guy, that's Bobby March, and he comes back to Glasgow and um, overdoses. And um, Harry being having a bit of a fight with his new boss has been relegated to do all the donkey work. So he attends the 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 the, the overdose and the body, and um, he's a fan of Bobby March's, but um, you know he thinks he's, he's he's got a bit less good as time goes on. Anyway, so in doing that, he starts to investigate what happened the night he overdosed, um, because he's been kind of sidetracked from the big investigation, which is the disappearance of a of a of a young girl who's about twelve, I think, if I remember correctly, um, called Alice Kelly, who's disappeared mm -hmm. into thin air somewhere on Maryhill Road, and that's the big investigation everyone's doing, but he's sidelined into looking after what happened to um, 
some um, rock star. And uh, so you mentioned a couple of potential examples, but yeah. uh, Bobby March, was he based on anyone in particular? Not, not entirely. I mean, there's, there's some of those people like, and I shouldn't say this because it sounds really sort of derogatory to their career, but, you know, like Jeff Beck and all these people. And it sort of came about that when, when um, Brian Jones uh, left or was pushed, you know, out of the Rolling Stones, yeah, they had yeah. quite a few people. And they auditioned, um, uh, oh God, what's his name? My brain's going to mush. American guitarist, J.G. Cale. Right, G. okay. Was it J.G. Cale? Yeah, J.G. Cale. And they auditioned to quite a few different people. And I quite liked the idea that this guy had been auditioned to be in the Rolling Stones and made the biggest mistake of his life and said, no, I don't want to join. I'm going to be my own rock star. <laughs> because bizarrely, that happens quite a lot. With, you know, they, a lot of people... Uh, musicians have a, 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 an enormous and innate faith in their own ability that's not always entirely shared by everyone else. So he then becomes slightly notorious for um, having turned this down. But the kind of MacGuffin in the story is there's a recording of his audition with the Rolling Stones because he auditioned people at Olympic Studios in, in Barnes. And he did record most of them on um, Real to Reels, I think. And the idea is that after that session, Keith Richards says, that was the best version of the Stones I've ever heard. You know, will you join us? And he says no. And this unheard tape is sort of what the, the story revolves around. Um, so this, as you say, this is just one investigation that Harry McCoy uh, is involved in. Yeah. It does seem to me throughout all the books you've done, he, he gets a lot thrown at him. Yeah, I'm always terrified of things not happening. <laughs> 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 I'm always like... I'll put something else in and then he gets mugged and then, you know, someone gets kidnapped, you know. I just have this fear of it being boring, so he probably gets a bit too much chucked down. So uh, between dealing with the rock star, he's sort of helping his sidekick Watty to, uh, on, on the margins to investigate what's happened to this girl. And there's also some bank robberies chucked in the equation. Yeah. And also um, his friend Stevie Cooper has, uh, uh, has become very rich and is, is, is finding things a bit difficult to deal with that. So I think, I mean, it's kind of like all these stories, you know, make the situation terrible, then make it worse. You know, so you kind of pile on as much as they can take, really. And, and um, that's what I always try to do, probably a bit too much sometimes. But I think I'd rather that than be scrabbing out going, oh God, you know, what's going to happen next? So. so as I mentioned, this is the third book, and yeah. there seems to be a few um, strands which go through it. They're certainly recurring characters. Yeah, I was thinking, someone asked me this the other day, and they were going, oh, you're writing these high requests. And I thought, do you know what? I'm not really. I'm writing a kind of family saga. It's a bit <laughs> like, you know, the winds of war in Glasgow. It's, um, there's about five or six, I think, that have to keep, have to keep finding things for them to do. Because yeah. I quite like this idea that they all move forward together and do different things. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of should have been clever in the beginning and not put so many people in the first group that then had to return. But... You know, you have to find bits for them and things to do, but I kind of like that. It's like this big dysfunctional family that are sort of tied to each other and um, sort of appear in all the books. And so I think it's really, it's not so much a book about one man, it's a book about one man and all the people he knows, really. Yeah, he's got a few kind of waifs and strays that he certainly... Uh... Yeah, he's got a few of them. I mean, then there's a few that are in there just because I like them. There's a woman called Isa who runs a Shabin who... Yeah. Nobody no real plot reason, but because I quite <laughs> like writing her because she thinks he's an absolute arse, I, I quite like putting her in to, to insult him. And, you know, he's got... Steve, Steve, sorry. No, on you go. Oh, I was just going to say, he's got Stevie Cooper, who he's noticed he's a wee boy, who's taken the opposite path and is now a big 
big gangland guy in Glasgow. This is Boss Murray, who's, you know, got a sort of deeper meaning to him, as you find out in one of the books. And, um, you know, there's Wattie's sidekick. There's a few different people that come along for the ride. Um, his uh, ex-partner, Angela, reappears in the yep. three. Um, so, yeah, there's a few of them to drag along with him, really. But I quite like that because they all have slightly different paths. And, you know, Angela kind of came back into this one because she was a huge fan of the Rolling Stones. And I thought, well, what would we do now? You know, she'd be working for um, Cooper supplying drugs to venues and visiting bands and stuff. You know, so you can kind of make them fit in a little bit. Um, and in the next one, I shouldn't be saying this, I'm in the middle of doing it now. But the next one starts <laughs> off in Greenock where Wattie lives. Um, right. So, you know, you kind of get the different people have, have some sort of reason to be in there, hopefully. But I think that's one of the good things about them is that you've got these characters that as a, a reader, you want to know what happens next to them. And maybe that's because you really like them and it comes across to the readers. Yeah, I do like them. Yeah. I, like to, I like to see what happens to them. And um, I like the fact they all bicker with each other and think they're all, you know, it's kind of like a proper family, you know, they squabble and they fall out with each other and they congratulate each other. And, and it's, it's kind of more fun than writing just one, you know, God's lonely man who never speaks to anyone, goes home at night and drinks himself to oblivion. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I think what I wanted to do is write a kind of broader portrait of what Glasgow was like. And if you have people you can follow, you can open up different areas and not just stuck with Harry McCoy interviewing yet another person, you know, who's committed a crime. So I think it helps open it up a bit, really. And the relationships are all believable. I mean, you can, because uh, he seems to have a, a foot in with the good guys and the bad guys, if you like. He's comfortable in both worlds. Yeah, I think that's, that's partly the timing, the, the time the books are set. And it's, it's, he's about the only sort of young detective who's got a bit in both worlds. He's got a bit in the rock and roll world. He's got a bit in the gangster world. He's got a bit in the police world. Because, in the, you know, if you go through books and do your research and stuff, the, the Glasgow Police Force was pretty, not that different in the 70s than it was in the 50s, largely. When right. there. You know, it was very male, very Protestant, very bah, take their heads and mask later. You know, it was very much that. So those guys can't really communicate with these new kind of people like Stevie Cooper or Angela who move in different worlds. But because yeah. Cooper's got a slightly different life, not Cooper, because McCoy's got a slightly different life experience, he, he can move through bits of the city that they can, and I think that's what helps him in his investigations, as much as giving us a different view of the city, I think. So why did you choose to set them in Glasgow in the 70s? Um, well, I like writing about Glasgow. I like Glasgow. I've always liked Glasgow. I mean, I didn't live here for 20 years, but I think, you know, people... It's, I don't even know Glasgow, and I spend most of my time thinking about Glasgow. <laughs> and yet you always find different little bits, you know, and you, you, there's always, you're always surprised. I mean, I did night classes um, on the history of Glasgow's industrial thing and uh, industrial past, 20th century past. And one week you had a lecture and the next week you went out and walked about and saw these things. And suddenly, you know, I always think of these things like layers and some bits of it uncovered and suddenly you see all this stuff that you just didn't know that was there or existed. So you go to Mary yeah. Hill and there's this huge, Thing about little metalwork shops beside and glass floor shops, you know, that's why it's called Marana Street, up, you know, in Mary Hill. And you find out all these different bits. And um, so I thought, if I only really know a bit about Glasgow, and I know, and I spend most time, well, how, how can I write a book about London? Or, you know, sure, sure. it's hard. And, you know, the, the place I probably know next best is Belfast. And there's a bit of Belfast in, um, yeah. 
this, but and even then I was like, God, this is really hard. You don't know the nuances. You don't know, you know, if you said to me in 1970 someone had this kind of job, you kind of know where they lived and you kind of know what they did. You know, you could what pub they would maybe go to, and you know, when you go to Belfast, a bit harder. You've got to work a bit harder. So sure. I think writing about someone you know, you place you know really well is hard enough without trying to give you know a sort of insight into Belfast in the 70s or you know New York in the 80s or whatever. So I'm kind of stuck there, really. And I mean, you mentioned about how the uh, police in Glasgow was at that time. Why that time then? Why why the, the, the 70s? Was that a period that kind of interests well, you? Because Glasgow was going through change, but it wouldn't really change, I would say, until the kind of 80s in the way that we know it now. Well, I think there's two changes. I think in the 70s, the city set, the residential People living in the city centre stopped happening. You know, they knocked down the gorbo, you know, they, well, they replaced yeah. it, knocked it down about three times. You know, and they started to build, you know, well, yeah, they already built, but they put people out to East Kilbride and Knightswood, and, you know, and that sort of, that began to fall away. And then in the 80s, it started to reinvent itself as a more European capital, you know, and I'd become involved in the service industry and, you know, and, and it yeah. became like a more modern city. So I think that time, the sort of mid to early 70s, was a very, Early to mid, it was a very odd time in Britain, as it as it was. Yeah, never yeah. mind just in Glasgow. So, I think, and you know, Glasgow's probably about probably at that time about five seven years behind everywhere else. Yeah. Well, that's not true. Everyone was probably behind London by about five or seven years. So the the kind of summer of love had kind of just arrived <laughs> and already fallen apart a bit. You know, so they got the kind of remnants of it. And I think when those cities are changing and people get forced into different areas and different roles, that's what becomes a bit more interesting. And, um, you know, the last of the, the last of the people who lived and worked, you know, within 300 square yards in the city centre had kind of gone, you know, the Parkhead Forge went, um, all these places that had been pretty fixed since the 20s, you know, how people lived and, you know, yep. and you always do this. And I was, someone told me that it was about that engineering, uh, night classes, you know, if you look at the corners of tenements, streets, they're always mm -hmm. the most elaborate because they were all banks. Right. And what happened was the bank manager ha had to live, so he wouldn't live anywhere that wasn't posh. So the corner ones, if you look, they're always right. very ornate. So, you know, even the bank managers lived besides where they worked. But yeah. then when they changed that, the dynamic of the city changed a little bit, I think. Um, so it just is an interesting time. And, and it's, the, the books are kind of set largely in north... East Glasgow, yeah, I think, yeah, sort of Springburn, the Milton, Lamb Hill, which is where my cousins all lived. So when I was about ten or so, when in nineteen seventy three, that's where I was a lot of the time because we used to go up there and play and everything. So that area of the city always seemed quite vivid to me. And I lived in Eldersley, which is a very boring village, and there was nobody there. <laughs> <laughs> so when you suddenly went to the Milton, there was hundreds of kids, and there was dogs, and there was ice cream vans. It was really exciting. And yeah, sure. I was always very happy to go. So I think that the city at that time, I remember pretty vividly, um, you know, so that seemed a good time to, to investigate a little bit. And Glasgow did have a reputation at that time, one which I think it struggled still to kind of lose of being a kind of city of crime, if you like. You know, the no-mean city, that all kind of, that was, was something. I, I, I think Glasgow quite likes that, you know. It's like, yeah. I think they quite, as a sort of, they get really annoyed if English newspapers imply that Glasgow is a, a sort of violent city. 
But if you ask me about Sweden, you know, oh, it's fucking mental, man. You know, they, 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 if they, as long as they're able to say it, they're quite happy about it. So, um, yeah, they've always had a certainly ambivalent view of it being as a... But, I mean, it was, and, you know, and I think what happened slightly later than these books, but we'll maybe come to that if, if, if we get there, is when the criminal people stopped making money out of money lending and protection and uh, prostitution and, and, and illegal, illegal drink sales and moved towards drugs, the, the kind of, there was less person-to-person um, -person encounter. You know, everything got put back and you have some guy living in, you know, Bishop Briggs who's got £80,000 his bank account every week but never sees anyone, but he's just got this web of people. But I think at that time, since you forget how little these sums were, you know, these money lenders would go around and decided to collect, you know, four shillings, you know, yeah, and, and, yeah. and beat someone up for the sake of that. And, you know, they would rob a, a sweet shop and get, you know, £12 or something. But it's, you know, it's not, it wasn't, you know, the great swindle of all time. It was pretty small stuff. And, yeah. and, and the weapons of choice were, kind of fists and knives, so it was very contacty, rather than kind of threats and guns and, you know, cars yeah. and stuff, so it was, I quite like that aspect of it, that they had to actually encounter each other. Um, you mentioned uh, the influx of drugs, and heroin's got a big role in this book. Yes! Um, <laughs> I, I think you uh, you kind of hint at it in, pre in previous books that it's on yeah. its and that's well, the kind of thread that, that does, the, there's lots of kind of, sometimes um, uh, just maybe in a conversation, but there are threads that Glasgow is changing throughout all the books. Yeah. Well, I think it's quite interesting, you know, and people hate to, me talking about this, but, you know, drugs are a kind of fashion thing as much as anything else. And in the early 70s, mid 70s, heroin was still kind of bohemian and yeah. glamorous and sort of... Um, Alexander Trocky and you know it was all very um the Rolling Stones and you know Sticky Fingers and all this stuff and you know Cocksucker Blues and all these you know yeah. it had a, a very glamorous aspect and I think it wasn't it wasn't a, an industrial amount for being used but it was still a kind of cool thing to have in Glasgow you know and I went to see a guy called Francis McKee. I don't know if you know him. He runs the archive at the CCA. Yeah, yeah I know you mean. He's, he's a great guy. And he talked me through the whole thing because, you know, and he said that when, um, the, when, when, the, the, when it became Third Eye Centre, it used to be the City Art Centre in um, Blythe Square, then it moved to where it is now. Yeah. And they got a guy from London to come up to run it. And um, he said to him, yeah, I'll come up, but you're going to have to pay for my heroin habit as well. And they were like, yeah, fine. You know, that's we'll put that on the bottom of the belt. You know, it's like, at that time, it was kind of cool, you know. Yeah. But what happens to Angela and to, you know, I shouldn't give too much away, but what happens no, no, they, get no. caught, they get caught up in that idea. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's, it sort of shakes them up and, and, and pushes them out the other side. And obviously what happens to all these things, they become cheaper and easier to get hold of and to become more people to take it. And, you know, it kind of switched to being, you know, uh, Keith Rutgers, an awkward old drug of choice, to being the kind of scheme drug of choice within about 10 years. You know, it's, it's yep. people's attitudes and fa sort of fashions and drugs is quite interesting. It's, you know, if you look at that Graham um, Armstrong about the young team, yeah, it's really good about what ecstasy, how people dealt with ecstasy and how people dealt with smoking, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, 
green, I suppose. You know, like, it's, it's definitely natural. And heroin wasn't there, and speed wasn't there. You know, so the drugs come and go. They yeah. sort of have their time and, and place. So at this time in Glasgow, heroin's still quite a, a groovy thing, but pretty soon it becomes uh, less so. Yeah, because you kind of expect, perhaps, that the fading rock star might, you know, that might be his ultimate end. But with other, when other people start to get involved, and then it's interesting looking back, knowing kind of what happened, as you say, something that was seen as um, the rock star drug of choice, and then how it filtered down, uh, you know, through into, you know, into kind of every aspect. And um, yeah, it's interesting to think that happens almost probably with most drugs when ecstasy first started coming out, and it was in the the, you know. Even in the eighties, when it was a New York drug of choice, and yeah. hardly anyone knew about it, and well, then it was everywhere. Yeah, it's always harsh economics. I mean, ecstasy, I, I, I believe, used to cost twenty quid when it started, and then it went down to two quid. You yeah. know, and somewhere the, along the line, somewhere along the line, to suffer. And then, you know, there's all the the conspiracy theories you want to have about crack in American black population, and you know, all those ones about being introduced to. You know, so it's, it's, it's economics, really. It's, 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 that's what affects it. But they've got to be trendy first. Yeah, yeah. They've got to be super cool first to get anyone interested. And then, of course, the super cool people move on to something else, you know? So, and, and everyone's left in the wake, you know? With, so it's, it's a kind of interesting thing. It's, you know, drugs are as much about fashion and consumerism as they are about anything else, really. Although the consequences are hugely more damaging than, than, than choices about clothes or... Than uh, wearing a pair of flares or something. <laughs> exactly. But it's kind of all part of the same thing, you know. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. So anyway, uh, sorry, that's where they are at the book just now. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I don't really want to give away too much of the, the, um, the book. I'm terrible, I keep doing it all day. Um, you say that you're currently writing the fourth. Yes. And I... Are you, I mean, it obviously, and ideally, this is going to be a series that goes on for some time. Well, people buy them, probably. Yeah, and, and is that, I mean, I know this, this might sound like a stupid question, but when you start, I presume that you say, well, we, we'd like this to be a, a series, but it does depend on people buying the books. Is that as simple as that? Well, it's, I think, I mean, I don't know, it's kind of hard because I don't really know how, I mean, I, I wrote the first book. And you have no conception of it being part of a series or no conception of going, this right, is a okay. idea. It's a series, so I better start at 71, not 73, because in book six I'm going to talk about it. You know, you just don't. You think, oh, my God, I've actually written a book. You know, you're sort yeah, of excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. And, you know, you, you don't have that thing. And then you go to publishing and go, okay, well, you know, we'd like to write some more, and it's a thing. And I didn't mind because I quite liked writing about the people that were in it. But I didn't think this is going to be the first book of... of so a series, you know, but crime books tend to go like that. They go in a kind of series, so I didn't really mind. But as I said, kind of said before, I certainly didn't. I don't know if people do start the first book of a series with everything in mind as to how it's going to play. Yeah, you know, as I said, I wouldn't have had too many bloody characters. I'd have started it about two years earlier. You know, it's, it's. Um, I don't know if everyone plans it out that way. Maybe some people do, I don't know. But you kind of end up in a series, which is, it's fine, you know, it's, it's, um, I liked the first one, so I was kind of happy to keep going. So, and I was happy that people wanted to keep going. So, sure. so yeah. what made you start to write in the first place? Oh God! Uh, Have you always written, or is this something that you? No, I I, wrote, I started working 
Is that a friend called John Niven, who's a writer? Yes, yes. Of some repute. Um, and we were doing, I can't even remember, we were doing some, he was writing something for TV and he said, well, you ever look at these scenes or something, blah, blah, blah. So I did a bit with him, so I did a bit with a friend called Laura, who's a film producer. And she was like, oh, can you look at the script? And I, what I didn't know was she sent me the script about, actually, I shouldn't really say this, but you know, about Hank Williams of all people. Right. And I went, God, this is awful. And then, um, not knowing anything about it, I just rewrote it all and sent right. it back. And she went, you can't do that. <laughs> 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 I was like, script. I was like, you never told me. I was like, it's much better. I was like, well, yeah. anyway, so that became a huge hoo very anyway, so I've been kind of writing about Glasgow and not very, you know, didn't write stuff for six months, you know, faffed about, didn't do it. And then Nevin said to me one day, you know, maybe you should read a book, you should write a book. And I said, well, I have. And I hadn't told anyone. And I don't right. think she's doing with it. And he went, oh, God. Um, he said, do you want me to read it? And I went, well, I'll write it. Um, so he did. And he said, well, it's not that bad. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> he sent it to his agent who didn't like it. But he said, no, I think it's, I think it's worth it. So he sent another author called Sarah Pinborough. Right. And she really liked it. And she said, I know an agent that would like it. And, and that was kind of it. So I feel terrible when I tell these stories at, you know, at library things and book things, because I know people find it really hard to get stuff in front of people and find it yeah. really depressing. And, and, you know, that they have to keep, you know, trying to get people to even pay attention to what they're... But I had the kind of very lucky, rare instance that it all went pretty smoothly, really. So I feel a bit guilty. <laughs> so the first book is well received and um, luckily it has January in the title. So was that when you thought, oh, well, we've got something going on here? Well, that's when Canongate thought there's something going on. <laughs> <laughs> that was the editor, Francis, who said, oh, I think shit is there. And I was like, all right. So I kind of got locked into this thing. Um, which I don't mind. It's quite fun trying to think up the title of uh, for the next one. But... Um, as again, it looks like I've, I've done it at the beginning, oh, these are all going to be months. And, but things fall into place, you know, it's not all... Yeah, sure, sure. You know, so we've ended up with this, which is kind of good and a bit of a, a, bit of a pain in the butt as well, because, um, you know, you've got to find a reason for it to be in April, you know, and find a, 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 a name that works and all this kind of stuff. But I suppose it makes it easy to line them up in the bookshelf if nothing else. You can tell which one goes first. Uh, one of the things that strikes me in the books is that the the way characters speak is very realistic. Are you one of these people that, you know, you'll sit in a cafe or a pub and kind of earwig on people and think, oh, oh really? I'm, ter I'm terrible. I like to, I like to, I, I'm not even really interested in what they're saying. I just like the way they talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then, um, you know, and I, I do, I sit in like that and I've got quite a sort of glacial resting face as a base. So I sort of sit there looks sort of, you know, innocuous in the background. And I'm like, some really weird ways. And I always notice the way people speak and the way they use certain words and stuff. And it's a bit, it's a bit I like actually. It's, you know, the way, um, the different, you know, the intonation and stuff is, is kind of interesting. And you, it change, the slang words change and, you know, and I can't bring myself to write it, but in 1970, the big word for something good was, it's magic. You know, and people don't really say that anymore. Yeah. And if you write it, they're just a bit stupid. But it's actually, that's what they say. They say it's gallus. But, you know, and it just gets a little bit cute, you know, so you've got to sort of temper it a little bit. But um, I do like the way, and I like the different way people speak. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's always good fun writing dialogue. You know, it's, that's always 
for me the easiest bit because it kind of boom, it kind of pours out. I sort of always get the opportunity to go, oh, well, I can get this person to speak like that, you know, because that would fit, you know, and it's 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 kind of good fun, really. So the dialogue bits bits always a winner. It's not. I mean, it's often very funny as well. I think that's the thing. There's a there is a, a um, often a rhythm or, or, or a, a a way of in Glaswegian speech which there's a comedy aspect to it. It's not one to, to be the funniest guy in the room or, you know, or yeah. that kind of thing. It's like, you know, you know, glass regions are fairly, if you can't, you know, if you can't tell a good joke, if you can't entertain people in the pub, you know, you're a bit of a lesser man. It's, um, Get your coat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, you know, and I like that. And I, I like the way that people take care of the way they tell things and they speak. And as you said, the rhythm of it. And I think, you know, if you listen to people speak to each other, especially men, they don't really speak to each other. They sort of, they have this weird, com if, you, if you literally just, you know, transcribe people's conversations, you know, yeah, are these people talk about? Mm -hmm. You know, it's all, and it's all adjuncts and stuff. So I tried to get some of that in, that this sort of slightly weird rhythm of men speaking to each other. And they don't really tell each other what they're saying. They have to get round it a different way. And, you know, it's, it's good fun. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the bit I kind of enjoy the most is, is trying to get that dialogue to sound right, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, um, it's a good bit of it. Because there is a kind of psychological aspect to Harry McCoy in that he has to take on board what he's actually been told and work out what he's really been told. Yeah. Because you know, exactly. even a relationship that's as close as the one with um, Stevie Cooper, Yeah. You know, he's not going to tell him straight, oh, this is how I'm feeling, or actually this is happening. Yeah. He's got to kind of work it out for himself. Well, I think especially, you know, males, probably still now, but especially in the 70s, you know, they didn't, or they don't talk very much about emotional things. It's not really par for the course, especially those guys. And, you know, they've both got big things in their life that happened when they were kids, and they have no space to talk about that. They yeah. don't understand how you could talk about it. Um, but even now, it's quite, it's extremely difficult for people to talk about. But at that time, when, you know, institutional abuse wasn't a thing, when people weren't used to the idea of a kind of confessional space, you know, it's, it was, they can't, they've both got this big thing that they can't talk about directly, but always slightly informs what, what they're saying to each other. So that yeah. was quite interesting to do it that way. Well, that's kind of one of the reasons they're so close, isn't it? Right. Even though they don't talk about it, they have this history, which... Yeah. Yeah, they're stuck together. They, they're kind of unwilling brothers, for want of a better word. You know, yeah. they, um, they, they kind of have been tied to each other. And they both, you know, Stevie Cooper, oh, I say this all the time, is kind of like a shark. He just goes forward, not interested in regrets or the past. He just keep going. And McCoy's the opposite. He spends half the time in his head, you know, ruminating about the past. And so they're not very similar characters, but because of their background, they're sort of bonded to each other. Um, and... You know, they, they can't get away from each other even if they wanted to. You know, it's the, the, they're both the most important person in each other's lives, you know, irrespective yep. of romantic life or whatever, you know, because they're the people, that, the only other person that's been through it with them. And they, you know, so that that's... And, and so they, they have, they kind of revert to what they were when they were wee boys. When they yeah. talk to each other. You know, Stevie gets rambunctious and, you know, pushes him about and shouts at you know, and... and, and, and uh, McCoy tries to sort of placate him and make sure he doesn't get too angry. You know, and they've sort of got this kind of look that they can't really get out of, even though they're grown-up men. So it's quite interesting just dialogue-wise how, to, how to, to make that work. Because in this book, um, there's, there's, you could say that Harry takes control of a situation 
that yeah. in other circumstances he he might not have taken control of. Yeah, he um he has to really. He's, yeah. Uh, he he realizes that no one else is going to do it, and he realizes what kind of debt he owes to uh, Cooper. So much against his wishes, he, he starts to try and um, impose his will on on uh, Cooper's, which doesn't go entirely well. But he's <laughs> <laughs> The first time I read one of your books, I remember thinking, oh, this is really fairly violent. And then I realised it's not, it's a little bit like, going back to sharks, it's a little yeah. bit uh, like in Jaws, you don't see the shark attack, you see what's just happened after it, which is yeah. really shocking. And that seems to be what happens with your books. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I think it's unrealistic to read, but I mean, the violent characters, but I don't really like pages of it, then he squished his eye out, you know, with a spoon. It's like... It just makes me a bit queasy, and I I don't really like describing it. So you kind of do get a little flashes of it, and and most of you get the aftermath. And hopefully, it's in there to serve some purpose other than just going ooh yuck. You know, hopefully it's 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 got some reason to be in there. But you know, people like Stevie Cooper get to be people like Stevie Cooper because they'll do things like that. You know that they will do very bad things to people. You know, so you have to kind of put it in, but it's. Whether you put it in as a kind of, sort of scary joyride or whether you try and just deal with the implications of it is, is, is kind of do two different things, really. And so, uh, have, you ever, have you ever written or come up with a, a plot strand that you've gone, no, that's too extreme? I'm not. I've just done it now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's slightly worrying. Um, no. Sometimes, I mean, I didn't. You know, editors are funny, they sort of ask you different things, and I don't know if I'm particularly, and you, I never thought the books were that violent at all. I was kind of amazed, people, oh, they're quite bad. And then um, I think, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, the first one is probably the most kind of violent one in a weird kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of got a little less, but um, the next one is pretty violent. But I don't know. I mean, actually describing violence is kind of boring, you know, and you just end up with bogeymen. You know, you end up with, you know, unless there's a reason for them to be like that, you just get this kind of, and I really hate these books where they have the serial killer who suddenly can make a new passport or, you know, disguise himself. You know, they can do absolutely everything. And you're like, it's just fucking boring. So, you know, I, I kind of think, and, and if you speak to people, policemen or people who deal with it, most violence, both people are drunk. Yeah. They didn't really mean to do what they did, and they're sorry about it. You know, yeah. it's not this Baroque, you know, sort of seven-type scenario where, you know, they do all these bizarre... It just really doesn't happen very much. So I think the kind of messy, slightly ugly, um, slightly stupid violence that most of these... I quite like to talk about that rather than a sort of mastermind who's torturing, you know, 50 people. You know, it's just not really my thing, really. I Crimes of passion or crimes of uh, or, or accidents, which you know things which yeah, go out of hand. Yeah, you know, you people go, oh, they got murdered. Like, you know, most people didn't mean to murder them; they just hit them with a brick because they were pissed, and the brick was beside them. You know, they don't have this. You know, most of it is just a drunken mess, really. You know, and that's kind of sometimes. You know, that's to me a lot more realistic than, as I said, is it than a kind of hugely planned out, you know, torture chamber type story. I'm just not very good at it. But there is a, a kind of fetishizing, oh gosh, there you go, fetishizing of uh, the gangster in Glasgow. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, and there's a great character in, in the book who is a kind of old school, supposedly retired kind of, he's just a brilliant character. And yeah. 
Um, the, yeah, the city in particular does kind of, maybe it goes back to what you said earlier on, enjoying the, the myths and legends that went before. Well, I think, I, I think if, you're, if you're slightly knowledge about Glasgow Gangsters, you kind of know who that is. Yes. Um, <laughs> I won't be saying, obviously. No. But um, he did used to live opposite my cousin. Ah, okay. In the Milton. And he was like that. He was like Daddy Warbucks. You know, he used to walk about giving kids money and stuff. You know, it was... He was the kind of a very kind of less grand version of Don Corleone. You know, he was the kind of, and I think at that time, and I always end up saying this: people think I'm idiotic. It's a lot about clothes. He was always immaculately dressed. Yeah, shiny, shiny shoes, and that was a kind of big thing, you know. And so I think you know that fetish of gangsters is, and he was kind of he wasn't really like all gangsters of violence. Let's be honest, they're not all nice guys, but you know he wasn't perhaps best known for he was best known for safe cracking rather than you know some yeah. hugely violent things. So I think people felt slightly more happy with them. So I think that kind of person gets more traction than perhaps the more you know just notoriously violent. But it's kind of like it's just you know anything that isn't the run of the mill working in a warehouse or working in, in a factory has a bit more glamour, you know, yeah, it's a sure. outside the profession. And as, you know, that book Freakonomic says, you know, people that, make, that work at McDonald's make more than drug dealers, but nobody wants to work at McDonald's. Everyone wants to be a drug dealer, you know? So <laughs> it's just, uh, I think it's kind of exciting, you know, for people in a way. And yeah, it's, it's a kind of big character. I mean, they all not big characters. They're... they're kind of exuberant personalities, so people are drawn to them, you know, and are kind of interested in them. And, and it happened, I mean, this guy just made this thing about, you know, the narco culture in Mexico and, and the special singers who compose songs about different gangsters and sing them, you know, and it's a big thing. So I think that's always, in society, it's always been pretty prevalent that they have a kind of celebrity. And the, the mafia side of things perhaps being the ultimate example of that, yeah. Yeah, but it's always in, I mean, you know, there's always a kind of, uh, a bit of glamour with these people, I think. So, uh, going back to Bobby March, um, he, he obviously was a musician and you worked for years in the music industry. I did. You know? Um, is that something that you would ever use in, in books, kind of uh, like separate from Ari McCoy? Would you ever say No, uh, well, funny you should say that. I did, uh, I, uh, one of the things that got cancelled was a thing in Milan, which is a literary festival run by a rum company for some slightly bizarre okay. reason. And, oh, um, man, you, that's, that must have been a bugger to miss. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, actually, I didn't really because I'm a terrible flyer, and Milan. Every time I've gone to Milan, it's been misty, and you have to go round and round oh, for an hour. So I wasn't that good. But anyway, so it all got cancelled, as you can imagine. And then he said, "Well, will you write us something? Um, you know, fifteen hundred words, just for the. They must have a magazine or a website or something." And I sort of, I sort of said in a moment of stupidity, "Yeah, I'll write something about late period you too." So. I've spent all day doing that, which is kind of weird because uh, it's kind of interesting, but you kind of have to, you know, it's a lot more research than you thought. I'm used to just blithely blabbering on and not checking anything, but, you know, you kind of have to chase it. But I, I never really, everyone kept going, why have you not got music in your books? Why don't you have music? I was never that interested in the music industry, to be honest, it just wasn't my... <laughs> I like the bands, but, you know, this kind of 
glorification of oh he was a fantastic AR man and you know he was a music vision you know like, give us a break you know so I was never that um, that interested in the kind of the people who worked in the company that's a terrible thing to say um, but you know I was never that interested in the kind of mythologizing of oh this record company was you know Warner's in the seventies was the greatest thing ever or Asylum or you know yeah or, you know which is uh, which is kind of weird because I did a lot of stuff with Factory which is exactly that kind of label but you know it's so anyway, so when you start, I just didn't really want to put it in. It just wasn't okay. really my thing. But it did seep in a bit. And then um, I found out how much it cost to put song lyrics in a book. And then it <laughs> <seeped> <laughs> in. <laughs> so um, uh, the original ones of uh, the original promos of February's Sun, I've got a Rolling Stone quote at the beginning, a Rolling Stones quote at the beginning. And that was taken and that, out, was it? And that was taken out and we've got Alvin Starburst, which is probably better actually, but um, you realise what things cost. But yeah, music's a kind of funny thing and it's funny because I've just been talking, because I worked at London Records with John Nevin for years yeah. and we've kind of been talking about maybe doing something together about stuff like that. So you never know, you know, never say no, but it's a kind of weird one. But were you always interested in crime fiction? Was that kind of your... I was, I was, I was for a bit. It kind of comes and goes. The, the, um, the first, you know, there was a Laidlaw ones I've ever been because my dad had them, which I really yeah, liked. Yeah. Then there was Philip Kerr's first ones, the, three, the first three books, which were in a Picador kind of compilation of the first three Bernie Gunther books, which I thought were really great. Then I read a lot of the Peter Corris Australian ones. So it kind of came and go on weird things. And then um, the Denise Mina ones, the first, um, Garnet Hill. Garnet Hill, yeah. I thought was amazing. And that, those, you know, I think that was a, the, the three of those. So I got really interested in specific ones. But, I, you know, I meet a lot of people who just read crime fiction. That's all they do. Yeah. And I think it would drive you bonkers, to be honest. It's just not, you know, I, I like a crime book as much as the next man, but I'm not going to sit and just read them all day. But yeah. the ones I do like, I really, really like. But I don't have this all-consuming need to just read crime fiction, you know. It's, I think there's a lot more other interesting stuff to read as well. And what about writing? Would you write something that wasn't crime fiction in terms of novels or...? Well, I'm, I tried, sort of trying to... I don't know if because I hopefully can get one. But I was trying to write one of these books where there was no crime in it. And they just... <laughs> and things just, you know, went along. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if we'll get to that, but I kind of like the idea of a crime book without any crime because you're kind of left with... Harry McCoy is a good month or things Harry like that. Yeah, exactly. Has a nice time and goes to the shops. But um, I don't know. It's weird that I don't... I think crime books are good because they're quite formulaic. Sounds a bit disparaging, but they're quite they're quite structured. Yeah, you have to have these certain things, and I think if you have that kind of underpinning, you can then do interesting stuff. And I think that underpinning helps. If you don't have that underpinning, you're kind of lost. What, what am I going to write about? I just, you know, to even start would be quite difficult. So I think if you've got that underpinning, you can kind of push off and go somewhere else, but you still have to keep it working as a crime book, which kind of makes it more economical and less just me blabbering on about, you know, Oban in the 1920s or something. You know, it's like, I think it's good to have, for me to have that thing that you have to keep coming back to and make the book work as a crime thriller. Yeah. And then hopefully put some stuff on the top, but it's about, you know, some different stuff. So I think for me, it's probably a good... A good, a good uh, genre to do it, I think. But you never know, I don't know. Well, Alan, thanks very much for talking to us. Uh, that's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll be back soon, hopefully, uh, talking to someone completely different. Cheers. Yeah.